0: Hello everyone and welcome to Building Besser, our podcast about the behind the scenes of building a franchise IP. I'm Anne Houck.
1: I'm Mike McCard.
0: And it's just us today.
1: Yeah, just the two. Just the two of us. You know, there's like the original version and then there's the Will Smith cover, but I can only ever think about the Dr. Evil version in the Mike Myers, Austin Powers movies. Yep. Is the definitive version of the song for me now? <laughs> it's
0: because like, you have class. With
1: Mini-Me? not Mi- Mini-Me. There we go. It's Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. No one can see the video. They didn't see my clever finger analogy. Whatever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they, they can imagine it. Indeed. Theater of the mind.
1: Theater of the mind. How appropriate for a show <laughs> like this. <laughs> I held up an index finger of one hand and a pinky finger of the other hand to create Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. And it just dropped a giant crystal orb on my desk. <laughs> That's cool. I should stop playing with that.
0: No, you need to have something to fidget with during this.
1: I'm not super fidgety. I just got this like big crystal orb, and it's fascinating. But I like this. Like I dropped it this time, and I really nicked it.
0: Oh, is that the um, selenite one you got from the last bookstore?
1: It is, and nice. I keep dropping it. <laughs> I should just leave it on the stand. It is fragile. It's not. Uh... Not nearly as durable as I would think. Well, I guess dro- dropping a crystalline substance, one would expect chipping and scratching.
0: So. Yeah, and I mean, selenite's not that hard mm. as far as like the hardness scale.
1: I just dropped it on a wooden desk. Actually, it probably hit the coaster. Now that I think about it, and that is a marble coaster.
0: Much tougher. What have you? What have you been watching lately?
1: What have I been watching lately? Or playing? Nothing. I have been <laughs> hosting community events nonstop in our Discord. So, I have not I I don't think I've read or watched anything. Yeah. Since we last recorded.
0: You might have to change that.
1: Played some Star Citizen last night. That's always fun. I like I like Star Citizen. It is a a community-funded project with far too much ambition for its own good, but you know, I think it's interesting like to take a big swing and whether it ends up working or not. Cool to have such a grand vision and chase it with such intensity and fury, so I really like it. Star Citizen, although they they had an announcement, CitizenCon was last week, this week, was recent. And they did a big reveal of the Squadron 42 game that's been under development for, I don't know how long, eight, ten years. Yeah. And a lot of people think it was, like, never going to come out. And they released new footage, and it looks really, really, really good. So they've clearly been working hard the whole time. So, working hard and making progress. So, yeah, you love to see it.
0: I have been, I'm actually kind of excited for today's, like, playing. Oh, really? I I have two to to bring before the council. I can't wait to hear it. The first, uh, so normally, I don't normally play too many AAA games. I think before Baldur's Gate, the last one that I spent a lot of time on was Red Dead Redemption 2.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: which of course mm-hmm. I had like my playthroughs that actually progressed and then I had my playthrough where Arthur Morgan was just happy in the mountains and foraged <laughs> around. Nothing lovely. bad ever happened to him. Yeah, right. So normally normally I tend towards indie games
1: mm-hmm.
0: and one of them that has been definitely in the top three this year for me, if not like... Top 10 all time favorite games. Whoa. Is Dredge by Black Salt Games. It released earlier this year. And they have been releasing updates and are currently on their way to two DLCs, which means it has re upped its playing time for me. It's a cozy indie fishing game that delves into increasingly Lovecraftian madness. and it's it's a
1: that's fantastic
0: yeah i mean it's lovely i've never seen a game that quite occupies the the niche it does because it's cozy pretty spooky with a very compelling plot it's a contained open world that you explore around that's equal parts fishing and an action adventure rpg and you're you're playing as a fisherman who's just come to town and is fulfilling and in the beginning advent deliveries exploring local islands and quickly learning to be deeply afraid of the dark, but Mm. then it quickly picks up the pace from there. There's, there's two things I love about it. And one is the art style. It's a low poly painterly abstract style. And anyone who enjoyed like the art of disco Elysium will probably like this as well, but it also has a very sort of dark and moody new England aesthetic with enough zest that it, the art style itself portrays the descent into madness and the kind of grappling with that, which I think is really interesting. And I, I also just really respect how they released that game. They released a, a decently short story that's that was entirely buttoned up and solid, and sort of as things have progressed, they've slowly started releasing more and more of the game as it's ready. And so I, I really uh, like enjoy the fact that they just made sure the core of the game was buttoned up and they didn't release the whole thing before it was ready.
1: Mm, I've never heard of it.
0: It's delightful. And then the second game that I have today is Witchwood, which was created by Alien Trap. It's another indie game, a crafting sim, which is the exact kind of game I normally don't bite on. Usually that gets a bit like laborious, tedious. However, this kept things exciting and plot relevant to the point where the crafting felt genuinely like part of the experience. In that game, you play as an elderly amnesiac who has woken up with no memories, but a firm belief that she must save the sleeping maiden that you meet early on. And then she embarks on this journey of like meeting out justice and crafting all sorts of goods to fulfill sort of the terms of that agreement. And I I just love the art style of it, because it's a fresh, like, collage-esque storybook aesthetic that fits the dark fairy tale genre that the game sits in perfectly.
1: Yeah, it is beautiful. I'm just looking at screenshots on the various uh, game storefronts.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And the soundtrack's just really good, too. Wow.
1: Yeah, this this is gorgeous. Yeah. You and I seem to have intersecting sets of games we're interested in, but also a lot of... We move into different spaces. Yeah. So I hadn't heard of either of these. They're both very, 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 very beautiful.
0: I I love both of them. Witchwood is definitely very good. However, Dredge for sure is like hmm. top three of the year.
1: Well, that's okay. a that's a ringing endorsement. I might have to uh, hop on Steam and add it to my library.
0: Yeah, it's it's been a strong year.
1: I have a predilection for games that make one's graphics card sound like a hairdryer. <laughs> so. <laughs> I th-
0: this I mean this one would be very light for that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Gosh, those are great games.
0: I know I was I was excited because I I played and I was like, I was I was playing Witchwood for the first time this week and I was like I'm I'm excited to talk about this one.
1: I wish I played more indie games because I I have such a predilection for AAA titles or indie games with like they raised four hundred million dollars eight hundred million dollars and there's. I'll get in like a rut because there's no new games out for me to try or play. And I had a, a run, like when the iPad first came out, of playing tons of indie games on the iPad, but I get so frustrated with touch controls. And so, you know, there's so many games that have that like art focus now that I really enjoyed. But if I played with a keyboard and mouse, I would probably, I don't know. I guess... One of the things I like about the kind of games I play is extremely precise controller input. Now, I use keyboard and mouse, but what I mean is, like, there's a a high, there's a, you have very fine-grained control over the movement of whatever you're interacting with, whether it's a shooter or a, you know, Baldur's Gate, top-down, you know, clicker. Uh, Things, like, go exactly where I want them to go, and I've noticed, like, with a lot of independent games, there's an emphasis on aesthetic, and so movement follows aesthetic more than precision. Yeah. And then I end up getting frustrated. Like it's part of the game, like your character stumbling or whatever. But then I get frustrated and close the close the game. <laughs> I guess because I've just played too many super tactically oriented games. And so sometimes when I play cozy games, I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with. The input lag or the the kind of decoupling it feels like I'm suggesting the character do something, yeah instead of like I am the character. I don't know for me that's a that's a a tough game loop and most of my friends who play like the hardcore games with me all play so many cozy games and spend so much
0: time in that genre, yeah. I, I feel like I'm decently picky on them because I don't like games that feel like you're directly on the railroad tracks of point A to point B. Mm. But they're, I also like the ones with a strong story. Mm-hmm. But overall, it feels like beyond just enjoying the indie games and stuff like that, a lot of them are much more achievable to like play and complete while being busy, just because I mean the, the time is so much shorter.
1: Yeah. Did you play Oxenfree? free?
0: I did not. Is it good?
1: Yeah, I like Toxin Free a lot. And it, it's story-driven. It's it's a bit older now. Yeah. But it's story-driven, but it, it had the same like controller and precision. But I did finish it because I got so into the story. Yeah. It was a game of the year. I feel like it's pretty recently, but knowing me, that might have been <laughs> 2014.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> was there's, there's an update coming for Stardew Valley, which means that Soon, my all of my playtime will revert to being Stardew Valley.
1: It was released in 2016, Oxenfree. free.
0: <laughs> that's that's recent enough uh,
1: for me. That's yesterday. <laughs> the the, the middle aged people out there get it. The time dilation is wild. <laughs> oh, you want to do some listener questions?
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds good to me.
1: Because I I see a couple that look kind of right up your alley. A lot of these are coming from our official Discord community. We have a Building Vessor Questions channel on our Discord. So you can still send me questions at mike at vessor.com, V E S S E R.com, and I'll get them in this sheet. But I think because a lot of the uh, community people have been playing the game and experiencing the world firsthand, you know, they, they produce especially interesting questions. Uh, so if you'd like to join us, go to vessor.com, sign up for the wait list. We are letting people in. Pretty regularly now. So, Eric asked, "How are Runja body language and facial cues different from humans?"
0: Nice. I mean, the the Runja emote very similarly to how birds and reptiles do. While some of the more reptilian traits may not be like quite as apparent because they are heavily feathered and they have clothes. Because a lot of reptiles, you know, shift color depending on mood and things like that they display emotions through head movements puffing of body feathers gesture and posture i know like their their crests don't move because they're they're not made of feathers but you would see like their head feathers and body feathers puff up and sort of change shape depending on emotion there's a there's a lot of examples that we have of corvids and other birds very clearly through like head movements showing joy grief even like emulating crying and this would be enhanced by the fact too that the runja's beak isn't hard and so there is some muscular movement capabilities there it's not fully keratinous so you'd expect to see more emotional cues on their faces that you would see from a lizard or a bird also just due to the fact that they've been around humans for a while that's something we see with, with a lot of domesticated animals, too, is that sometimes they start mimicking human faces. That's if anyone's ever gotten curious and Googled, like, why is my dog smiling? A lot of times the answer is, oh, they've learned that is a thing that means this. Mm-hmm. And so you, you would see kind, kind of a mixture of what we see Earthside side combined with higher facial flexibility and like interaction with humans.
1: A lot of times when folks ask these questions, I don't want to answer too much because part of what excites me about this project is players helping define some of these norms. Mm-hmm. But a couple things I'd imagined is, one, runja are feathered, but they do have, you kind of like you mentioned, they have a proto-beak. It's still a lot of soft tissue up there. And so there are regions of their face that are not feathered, and a lot of parrots can blush. So even though they're super feathery. They can blush, and they blush like much more obviously than humans do. So I'd had to imagine that was a cue, in addition to everything you mentioned. And the other thing is, one thing I've always thought about is, yeah, runja learning from human cues, but also human learning from runja. So I think humans in Vahasya society, in a lot of ways, would emote differently than we do. I think if somebody was agitated or excited, they would be more likely to bob their head Uh, even as a human or, you know, more shoulder movement or, you know, kind of making your posture bigger to emote. Almost like humans in Vahasha society are stage actors who are always on stage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Big motions, big expressions of affect, because there is this uh, mutual cultural resonance between humans and they've, You know, they've been at this point sharing a culture for tens of thousands of years. it's a They've been together a long time and have a, a fully merged social fabric.
0: One one thing I was thinking about the other day that was bringing me quite a, quite a bit of joy to picture, I grew up with a bird, Cockatiel, who's actually still alive in her mid-20s, but she always used to dance when she heard music. And it was like a very funny, like, like staccato like bobbing dance, and I was I was thinking about that the other day because I came across like an old video of it, and wondering how social dancing looks different amongst the Vahshas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It would it would probably look pretty funny to everyone on Earth because there would be a lot of bobbing, a lot of like that kind of sidestepping, bird like movements, even things you see about like birds of passion, like their their sort of dances that they do. And then where I started giggling a little bit with it, too, was imagining how, like, the tour effects would influence this because, you know, like, birds and their, like, not birds, bees and their commutative dances, how they do, like, the tail waggles to talk.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And just, just putting this all together to imagine, like, what does a club on Vesser look like?
1: Well, I think it would be especially funny because the tour effects might be a bartender... Hmm. But other than Hamathi, mm-hmm. they they wouldn't stop to socialize a lot. They just, you know, they work and work and work and work. So even when they dance, the function of dance is so different for them. But then I can imagine humans in just seeing a Torfax, seeing another Torfax, and starting to shake its entire body. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And then the other Torfax shaking her turn, the next thing you know, like... All the Torifex in the room are are doing this thing. And you're like, oh, they're so happy to see each other. And they're like, no, they're talking about what happened across town.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I was – imagine the Torifex bartender because they they could be using one set of limbs Mm -hmm. to mix a drink and another set to do entirely other tasks.
1: Yeah, Torifex are wild. I've noticed the players we have so far are pretty fascinated with the Torifex. I don't know if that's just because you can't play as a torfx Or if, like me, they're just like, wow, wild, sapient, eusocial beings. Because <laughs> <laughs> people get to interact with Torifex in-game now, and so they get to experience an individual with no individual sense of identity and what that's like.
0: Would you like a question, Mike?
1: I was gonna go straight into MJ's question. Cool. Because it seemed it seemed like really interesting in contrast with the other one. Random question Human Geared. What types of clothes is there human wise and era wise? Ooh. Mm-hmm. If there are different focus and types, is their signature something that they wear? A focus and type is a mechanic in the game. So there's six types Arcus, bulwark, helm, conduit, lens, wraith. And then foci is just how people have their emanation. So, for example, do race wear a black woven band on their arm or head? I keep thinking that a lens would like shiny things for some reason.
0: Okay. This is, this is many-layered, and I'm, I'm pretty actually excited about this one. As far as – I can actually group together the first two. So, like, what era and then what do humans wear? Because that kind of combined in our research for this – we, we tried to simplify down clothing when we were sort of looking at it for the Vahishoth in originally two categories, which is self-expression and problem solving. So when people in certain environments came up with items of clothing, what was the original problem they're trying to solve with that garment? And so there isn't exactly a neat analog for earth era, as far as clothing goes, we took inspiration from a lot of different cultures. A lot of the sort of water heavy Southeast Asian cultures have a lot of wrapping bits where they can kind of convert their clothing based on activity, humidity, rain, things like that. And then another another element that really played in there is a lot of the Nordic cultures and some of the uh, Europeans used very modular clothing where they have pieces that attach and detach. And, and one of the reasons why that was so intriguing to us, especially combined with the more wrap style, is imagining how tailors in Vessor would cater to a multispecial clientele.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there would there would be some specialty pieces that are human only, but you can imagine that a lot of the clothing that exists is something that can be made to sort of fit down onto a form because i mean if you if you look at the idea of essentially buying something off of the rack versus tailored you're you're going to see shopkeeps start to broaden things so that if a runja comes in they've got the yardage of fabric to sort of work with with their forms that isn't going to tie their feathers down but if a human comes in it can kind of fit their very like relatively much more slight frames. So it's it's overall going to be a mix of like wrapped yardage pieces, a couple of like sewn pieces as well that just fit strictly human forms and a lot of modularity. I think you would see that mostly in exile just due to the environment that a lot of them are in. Uh, it's a lot more wild, a lot more varied as far as what they're encountering day to day with terrain so they would especially value something that can for lack of a better term take them from day to night
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love it
0: and then as far as the types go this is this is something that at least i've been sort of going back and forth on because a lot of the different types do train together and it's not quite as separated as you would imagine You know, a 5e where you have like the druids over there in that corner and the rogues over there in that corner, and they're kind of doing their own stuff and they might come together in an adventuring party. They are all part of the same school. However, you would see them each tend towards clothing that is advantageous to their types. So absolutely, a wraith might tend towards either darker clothes or even iridescent reflective clothes that could start to play with the light a little bit. There's a lot of focuses that you can add on to being a wraith or like essentially what you specialize in that deal with light manipulation. And so it wouldn't necessarily be like dark clothes are the best for them. Sometimes it's it's things they can change, things that are light and airy and don't inhibit movement. However, I mean, when you when you put any sort of group of people together, they will always start to form like the whole friendship bracelet, not a friendship bracelet, but like essentially unifying factors. So you would imagine that identifying pieces would be more common among different cohorts rather than just Mm. type only. So you might see a couple of different like years of novices tend towards like maybe a signifying charm on their belt or an armband or things like that. And some of those could become traditional and go sort of sort of to the way that we see things happen in colleges with like fraternities and groups and stuff like that. Now the, the scribes are completely different. They do have kind of a similar uniform, not in cut because it's really hard to do that with the wide of, like wide array of jobs they do. They have very different needs as far as what garments they wear, but they all utilize the same color fabric. So all of the scribes have elements in their outfits that include this dark green color.
1: So much new information for me there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I know we've gone over some of this, but a lot of it is just like things I have written down that get incorporated into every illustration.
1: Well, Anne and Alex have a lot of apparel and fashion sidebars that I'm not necessarily (laughs) in or privy to as it's so far out of my zone of expertise. Like naming? Like much like naming things. I also don't like to name things. I do think, you know, I think the type that might have the most Because, I mean, so we're talking, types are expeditioners. They have a very particular job, which is going beyond the literal walls of civilization onto, you know, self-supporting missions. You know, when people are in a character creating session, I'm like, gear really matters because this isn't a 5e campaign. There's not a town with a store over the hill. Once you're out, you're on your own. It is survivalism. And so I imagine, like, there's a lot of themes among... Across types, you're wearing gear that helps you survive. It's kind of like people have individual expression. But if you look at like people who hike, it's all kind of the same staples because it has to be, right? Yeah. But I did think the only type that might have their own thing might be the bulwark. Oh, yeah. Because I bet they would be more likely to wear padded clothing to deal with the fact that they're wearing almost universally heavy armor every minute of the day unless they're sleeping. And if you imagine like trudging through the wilderness for days or weeks at a time in armor, I think that would have fashion and apparel considerations because your clothes have to work under armor. And you're the only, I think, type that generally wears heavy or medium armor all the time.
0: Yeah. I mean... You've touched on something there too, which is expeditioning versus non-expeditioning clothing. And I would think that it wouldn't be unlikely for there to be some manner of self-expression on top of your expeditioning clothes, but it's probably pretty minor. Just because, I mean, you're, like you said, with the hiking clothes, you're dressed for the wilderness. But yeah, that that's a whole nother facet to explore too, is like, what do they wear when they're training, when they're just hanging out in the garden versus journeying to the sun tower.
1: Who would have thought that all my thought went into what they wear in Alatheuk and none <laughs> in exile?
0: <laughs> I, that's it's funny to me because you are also the one that brings up like downtime and how often are people expeditioning.
1: hmm And I wear a black or gray t shirt every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, including when I hike.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as as someone who also hikes a lot. I love the idea of expeditioners embodying like the trail trash aesthetic.
1: Mm. That's
0: delightful to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause that is one of my favorites. Yeah, that's awesome. Julia asks, are there social movements to incorporate emanation back into regular society and hash?
1: Absolutely. Of course. One of the things we care the most about in the setting is it is no more culturally monolithic than earth. And I think out of necessity for telling stories, a lot of settings, if not monoculturalized, limit the complexity of the social movements within their society. But we, number one, want to tell nuanced stories. Number two, we want there to be a lot of juice in gossip in the world and factions and cloak and dagger politics because some people that's really their jam and gameplay and we want to support that as much as we want to support the power fantasy of standing toe-to-toe with a monster right and we also want people to have the room to create their own social movements like pitch your gm on what your character's background is and what this group of people you come from believed and that said of course course there are people who question and push back on the dominant narratives of society and the most preeminent narrative of Vahasha society is emanate, emanation is somewhere between dangerous or just very risky depending on who you talk to so there are some people who basically see emergent as kind of an oppressed people group and that that's really not fair and some of those people are emergent and some of those people are not emergent the seven would push back and say what do you mean at great expense we supply them we provide them facilities we do all these things and only the emergent can become exalted but the, you know there's there's a, a countercurrent certainly not a majority of people not even a plurality of people but there are movements to fully reintegrate emergent back into society and there's an even smaller movement to bring back emergent as the rulers of society, so and then the people who want to integrate emergent into society like are like no, we're not with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but then like we might vote together in an election out of convenience, so we're sort of frenemies or in a friend in I don't know, I can't think of a word that's like <laughs> more enemy than friend. Allies of convenience, Inament and that's yeah <laughs> and so that's you know that's all baked into the setting there are fewer people who want to see the dividing line between scribes and emergent people torn down or to remerge arcane and imminent traditions which is interesting
0: it's very interesting I mean, one of the things that you do a great job of explaining too is the difference between like mainstream factions, cults, and other organizations, because all of those exist in world and while some of them may have converging goals, they're completely different things.
1: And there are so many cults. There is so many more cults in Hash than there are on Earth now or in the past. Largely because in a manner of speaking, gods roam the earth <laughs> or roam the planet, roam Vesser. So there's a lot of Titan cults. Yeah, yeah, so many Titan cults.
0: So this, this seems like a good segue into the last question I have here, which is pretty long. So ask me if you need any bits of this repeated. Let me know and we can kind of tackle this together. Aaron says, okay, I have a question for the podcast related to the World of Vesser vision update that was recently released. It is clear that stories and storytelling are absolutely central to the ethos of the world of Vessar. From the quote, stories shape us, are a part of us, and therefore belong to us. I love this, by the way. I'm curious if and how this ethos of storytelling has affected the world building you've been doing. On the podcast, we've heard a lot about how rigorously thinking through the science of the world has affected world building, everything from languages to species migration to doorknobs. However, as I read your ethos statement, it seems like it seems to claim that stories shape us in a way that blurs the lines a bit between science and narrative. Again, I'm all in, but this causes me to wonder, what stories have the Vahishath created that shape them? And have those stories affected your world-building decisions? For example, it seems to me that in a world where emanation can emerge almost anywhere and titans roam the planet, religions or legends would likely emerge as well. People often create meta-narratives to make sense of such terrifying experiences, if so, those religions legends would go on to deeply affect the culture. In other words, does the hero's journey archetype exist in Vesser as it does for us? What religions or legends are present and do the different species tell different stories? Incredible question.
1: Yeah, okay. So stories are an animating ethos in Runja human People groups, they are not among the Torifex. In, among social animals, well, we have an example of one on Earth, a linguistic social animal. Stories create a defi- a shared sense of identity and purpose, as well as help shape the the ethics the the mor- the morals of a people group. Torifex don't need any of that. <laughs> they, they just automatically are working together all in as communal as an organism can possibly be, based to the quirks of how eusociality creates a different set of incentives for genetic templates and organisms. So let's talk about humans in Runja. Well, the age of ascendance was materially different from any other period in Vassirian history across the world in that A civilization secured an entire continent on the world. But that continent, the Amazov Empire, was the group that did that, was split into a number of city-states that varied over time. What caused that variation? How many ascendant there were at a time. An ascendant always got a throne. And the throne always became the capital of a city-state that had its own territory. Now, sometimes the boundary between city-states was somewhat nebulous. There'd be shared power agreements. But great care was taken to keep Ascendant cooperative because you did not want to see a war between Ascendant. Number one, it'd be catastrophic. And number two... There was a different set of pressures. Humans have always, on Earth, been such a dominant part of every ecosystem they're a part of. And with the ascendant, Vahasheth were getting there. But Titans were still a constant threat. Even when we had sigils that went out, a click from the coast all around the continent, it still took a lot of work to keep the titans at bay. And so this greater threat created cohesion. And yet, Ascendant, I mean, they called themselves Ascendant. (laughs) They they sort of (laughs) styled themselves as demigods or or deities. And so these people groups in these city-states, their kind of defining mythos was Ascension. And the superiority of ascension. Yeah. And so these became defining stories. And and that was fine because everybody kind of had their own spot. We hadn't run out of room on the continent very long uh, before the Age of Consequence. So you have the Age of Consequence. And suddenly all these people who have these defining mythos of ascension, but their own ascendant or their own lineage of ascendants, over hundreds of years, their cities fall, and they're all making their way easterly and towards the center of the continent. The climate is changing, by the way, catastrophically, which is driving a lot of this. And now they all arrive in Hash. So you have all these people from all over the continent, and a plurality of them are from Hash, born and raised in Hash, but enormous numbers of people are, are, are immigrating. And so they're holding on to their mythos, which is different in very fundamental ways from the uh, mythos. So they didn't develop a, a universal hero's journey because actual heroes created different hero journeys. And so even though now it's been a long time, almost 2,000 years, of the kind of modern era of the Vasha we still cling to a lot of these old stories. And if that sounds implausible, I would ask you to consider regions on the earth where people groups have been sharing space for a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years, and do old ancient stories still shape the way people relate to one another when they share soil? They absolutely do, and they persist. And so there's a lot of religions that are based on... The remembrance of a story, but not ascension anymore, because like there's been so much propaganda work uh, and story work done by the seven of the 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 value of the common person, right? Meaning not a scribe, not eminent, like the wisdom that comes with simplicity, and so these are competing narratives. And then they're mixing. So we're like holding on something, form of identity that's we were from this place. And we remember the place that so we can name the place. But we're not really talking about ascendant anymore because they abandon us. And then these things are kind of getting in a blender. And then so you have those kind of religious traditions. And then you have kind of titan-based and anti-based religious traditions. And then basically, long story short, you never got central defining orthodoxies if you study the hero's journey we got to a bit of not a monoculture but a limited number of story archetypes coming from faith traditions on earth one of the big defining defining lines between east and west philosophically i'm going really deep here i apologize (laughs) is the differences functionally in like monotheistic versus non-monotheistic faith traditions And, and the hero's journey has a lot of roots in monotheistic faith traditions and pro- great prophets or, me- or messianic stories, and they don't have that, the Vahashat, to the point that the closest thing to a large organized religion is the order of signs. This official government institution is basically a religion devoted to sigil arcana, but even this is weird compared to earth traditions because orthopraxy is vital. You must practice your faith in an exact way. And orthodoxy, we don't actually care at all what you believe. So even inside the order of signs, which is the closest thing to having a unified set of traditions, the animating stories vary wildly and are even directly contradictory.
0: Before we wrap, there's a couple other instances I can think of, too, where storytelling comes into a big role. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how the Runja view time as a river mm. and their sort of mythos around that. And they absolutely create a lot of stories that are passed down generation. But as far as how it affects world building, for anyone in our community who's had the opportunity to play the adventure in the halls of Singing Stone, the entire. Not, not the adventure thing. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> I don't I don't, th- I don't think this one's going to be. Okay, cool. yeah. The, the entire idea that precipitated the building of that adventure on the world building team is how did the people on Vesser tell stories, how did they memorialize those and what did that look like in practice? And so while a lot of the things in that adventure definitely come down to like the science of the world, how things operate, the, the core idea that kind of started that ball rolling was storytelling and the preservation of that. See, I, I think I got it with no spoilers there.
1: I was like, here comes mega spoilers in <laughs> Nope. No spoilers. Maybe framing spoilers at most.
0: Maybe. And I do think that is all we have time for today.
1: Okay. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us for another episode of Vesser. We love your questions, comments, reviews. Keep them coming. And it is a special time in the world, and you can actually be a part of it now. You can build Vessor with us mm-hmm. by joining our official community. So, like I said, we are letting people in from the waitlist all the time now. So, if you want to get in, you will have that opportunity. Just go to vessor.com, V E S S E R.com, and tap join the waitlist. Send us your email address and we will send out another invitation to let another wave in every couple of weeks at most so it's a lot of fun we are playing games all the time and I'd love to play a game with you so thanks for listening everybody and take care
0: see you next time